can I live for the rest of my life in this relationship as it is today and experience a wonderful life and experience the happiness, the peace, the joy that I want to experience? Is that possible in my current relationship if nothing changed from the way it is today? And if the answer is no, the question to ask is, so therefore it needs to change or I need to leave. What evidence do I have that this is going to change? And that's a question you have to ask very, very soberly. There's a biased judge in here that wants to do yeah. what's comfortable, not what's going to make you happy. And you have to be very careful of not listening to that judge. Hey folks, I'm Michaela Peterson, and I am so pleased to introduce Matthew Hussey as my guest on episode number 103 of the Michaela Peterson podcast. Matthew Hussey is a best-selling author and the world's leading dating advice expert for women with millions of followers on YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, and social medias, also possibly the most hilarious newsletter I am currently subscribed to. We had a great discussion about whether some people are meant to be single or in relationships, vulnerabilities in relationships, jealousy, gaslighting, and more. This episode will be interesting for anyone who wants to learn about rejection, gaslighting, didn't know what that was, and other related topics, or to see the world's most flirty human being doing a podcast. I say that with admiration and love. If you do enjoy this episode, please don't forget to subscribe. Thank you, Matthew, for coming on the podcast. Matthew Hussey, welcome to my podcast. Thank you for having me. I've been excited about this. This should be very good. I have so many questions uh, and I've been following you for a while, so this should be good. Before yeah. we, before I'd like hammer you with a whole bunch of questions, can you give a brief background about who you are and what it is you do? Yeah, man. I always worry about this question because I never have a, I feel like a great answer for it. I started out 15 years ago with an organization that was designed to help women in their love lives. Uh, you know, it was quite, it started out as a very practical kind of experiment, which was, you know, women have a lot of questions for their love lives that don't seem to be being answered by cosmopolitan. So, you know, can I actually be of more help? And, you know, I read a lot of women's books, uh, on dating and relationships, and I found some of it to be questionable in its approach. And so I started to take a different approach that was just very practical, very logical to how women could get better results in their love lives. Everything from finding uh, a person, attracting them and having a great relationship. That put me on a journey of, of coaching. And to tell you the truth, it was never really dating that was my passion. It was people. And mm. it gave me a platform uh, that built quite quickly through my 20s. And that's allowed me to reach a lot of people with ideas. And now I'm in the, the privileged position of being able to not have to talk about dating constantly and still have an audience even when I'm not. And, and that's what I enjoy doing today is empowering people uh, in all sorts of, of areas of their lives. But I, I, in that area, I wrote a New York Times bestselling book and there's been millions of people that have come and seen my work. And so, you know, that's all, it's been a kind of a wild 15 years. It's been 15 years. So did you start 
because you just saw an area or was there something that triggered the interest in helping women attract men? No, that wasn't, I, I, I started, I mean, here's the thing. I started when I was 11. I, I, my dad was a, a crazy like entrepreneur. Uh, he's still around. Uh, he's not past tense, but he was a, a, an entrepreneur. We had our ups and downs, but whether we were living in a house or a trailer, he always had books. And when I was 11 years old, he, he had a book on his shelf called how to win friends and influence people, which of uh, course yeah. everyone knows. But when I was 11, I didn't know that everyone knew that book. I, I thought I'd discovered some kind of secret scroll that only I had access to. And I read it and I, I, I loved it. I mean, I loved this idea that you could be better at, with people, that it wasn't, you weren't just condemned to however shy or introverted you thought you were. And I was both as a kid. So that mm. kind of set me on a path. When I was 14, my friend's dad dragged his son to a Tony Robbins seminar. And I, being the friend of, of this guy, got dragged too. But I wasn't really having to be persuaded because I was already into those kinds of books. And so I went along and that became oh, the kind early. of... Yeah, and it became this marriage of some of the content I was reading with the performance aspect of it, someone who had an incredible, you know, whatever you, th you think of Tony Robbins, love, hate, whatever, that person has an extraordinary charisma on stage. Yes. And that then became this, this marriage of the two that set me on a path quite early. Not that I thought I was going to do that. I mean, I was, you know, studying real estate at university, but I, I knew I was interested in that world and I was looking for any opportunity to help people. and. I'd coached guys from 19 years old. Uh, I was doing one-on-one -on -one coaching. I remember going into London and seeing a seminar where guys were coaching other guys on how to talk to women. And it was a weird, underground, strange world. But even at the time, I was like, well, this is a stage that at least I can get on. <laughs> there, you know, no one's going to uh, let yeah. me on. No one, Dale Carnegie, and I know because I went there at 16 and asked to go on stage for them. Uh, they weren't going to let me on stage. So if I found this kind of strange little underworld in London of people coaching other people, I realized, oh, I might actually get some time coaching people, even if I it's four or five people. And that's where it started for me was helping men. And then at 20, I had the idea that, well, no one seems to be doing a great job of this for <sighs> women. Yeah. So I'll start helping women. So when you're coaching people... Just say for the men, the men aspect where you're teaching men how to pick up women, does that end up translating to the rest of their relationship or are there just like tricks you learn and then you can pick up women, but then after six months, some of these tricks wear off and you have to figure out, you know, how to have a personality or something? That's a fascinating question because it's, it's kind of interesting to me that different different phases of a relationship require such different skills. And the, the act of having to walk over to someone who you don't know, I mean, of course, now we have apps and so on. But mm -hmm. when I started my company, I, that was, it was very much the world of no dating apps. You had to go and do something. The idea of walking over to a stranger that you don't know with the intention of picking them up, man or woman, is 
an intensely scary thing for most people. And one that's even scarier for people today because they're 15 years out of practice or they were born into a world where they've never had to do that. And it's kind of, it's extraordinarily unique to the first five minutes of your life with someone. <laughs> so it's not a skill that you necessarily have to be good at again after that. And Okay, yeah, fair. And so now you meet someone and you get into a relationship, you're now into a different skill set, which is showing up for someone, being a great teammate, being a great partner, knowing how to get through hard times together. Hopefully you don't lose all of what made you attractive in the first two weeks. Cause I, I am a big believer that what made you attractive in the first two weeks is still a key to what will make you attractive in year two and year four and year 10. I think people losing that idea is part of the reason why relationships yeah. go stale and, and die. But yeah, you're, you're right. It's a different, it's a completely different skill set, And that's why people who find themselves to be men or women, I coach who find themselves to be single again, after many years out of the game, so to speak, mm -hmm. hate the, that part, most of them. Like, you mean I've got to go and talk to a stranger again and put myself through this? This is a, a horrible thing for most people to have to put themselves through. Huh, okay. Most people think... want a relationship, but they don't want a date. That's fair. I don't think I ever had that problem, to be honest, going to you were You were people. pretty brave? Yeah, maybe, maybe too much, probably. I wasn't worried about that kind of thing at all, which is interesting. That's really amazing. Where do you think that comes from for you? Because I was the opposite. I was quite afraid. I didn't, I mean, the worst that could happen in that kind of situation where somebody says no didn't seem that bad. Like, what are they going to say? Turn, like, what are they going to do? Turn me down? Like, oh, well. It, that, so that amount of fear, I guess, just didn't, didn't disturb me for whatever reason. I have no idea. I, I suppose that most people, you know, including myself at that time, equate that rejection with the, with our own worth, you know, uh, with, yeah. if I, if, if you rejected me, it must mean I'm hideous. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. So I didn't have that. I just had, oh, well, their loss. So maybe just grandiose self-esteem. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. Thank you. Thank you very much. Maybe how I grew up, who knows? This episode is brought to you by True Local. True Local partners with local farmers and butchers in your area to source the best meat and deliver it to your door. Meat like 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef. Pasture-raised or raised without antibiotics chicken, RWA. Lamb, bison, and more. Eating healthily is so important for attracting people. Trying to make it relevant to this episode, guys. But seriously, Eating meat makes you more attractive, hands down. There are studies on that on men. There are. I recommend their grain-fed beef, wild salmon, and their lamb is some of the best I've had. Look at this baby. Look at this. They also have 100 different cuts of meat that you can't find at your grocery store, probably, depending on where you live. In the boonies, definitely not. To get started, just go to truelocal.ca for Canadians. And that's T-R-U local ca for canadians or trulocalusa.com for americans to build your own personalized box o meat shows up at your door vacuum sealed individually portioned like so buy an air fryer also just throw those steaks in the air fryer flip them once the laziest way to cook it works so well and use code mp to get free steak in your order at truelocal.ca or truelocal.com code mp enjoy the rest of the episode 
Uh, do you think do you think some people are destined to be single or are people supposed to be in relationships? I don't know that I think I was just talking we literally just did an episode of my podcast right before this and we were talking about that idea of is one better than the other should should we aspire to one particular state and we do live in a world culturally societally where it it still seems to be that the undertone is still why are you still single that, mm -hmm. that carries it carries that message that there's somehow something wrong with you if mm -hmm. you are and and i really worry about that because i i mean not least of which because i work with literally thousands of women a month who are making bad decisions based on that idea of their value that they're somehow not as worthy or they haven't achieved enough if they don't find themselves in a relationship or they don't find themselves with children. And it, I, you know, I saw the, the interview that you guys did, you and your dad with Russell Brand. And there was a, a moment in that interview where your dad said something that was very interesting from my lens, because I, I have a different, I suppose just a diff, I, I've had a different perspective for the last 15 years. And he, he said, you know, he didn't feel that someone could really truly grow up unless they had children. Yeah. Which is obviously a bold statement, which your dad is not known for, of course. No, no. I, 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 um, I heard that and I, and I actually intrinsically, I understood what was meant by it. I, 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 I truly do. I come from the perspective where I've, I've dealt with Probably, ironically, as a, as a man who doesn't have children and who isn't a woman, I have dealt with more women than probably most people on earth ever have or will who are grieving the fact that they have missed their moment to have their own biological children. And so I see the... Um, I see the pain, the terrible, terrible pain that comes with that. And I'm very close and intimate with that in my profession. And I also deal with an incredible number of people who are made to feel like a failure because they're not in a relationship. And I think it's, it's really, really damaging to people's, not only their confidence, but their ability to be happy with their current lot in life. And, and what, I, what I don't like about the cultural thing of, you know, you're more successful if you're in a relationship is that I deal with people every day who become instantly more successful the moment they leave a relationship mm -hmm. because they shouldn't be in that relationship. It's toxic. It's abusive. Yeah. They settled yeah. for something that's far less than they deserve. And so success to me is leaving. It's not staying. But when we get constantly indoctrinated with this idea that that being in a relationship or having a stereo, stereotypical path in life is success we start to make really bad decisions yeah i suppose I it's an interesting conversation as to whether there is just whether there is just a higher like there's a hierarchy where you know there is an ultimate state that is just objectively better than the others. But um, I don't know if thinking that way does us any favors in our decision-making. 
in yeah. the moment. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Um, how do you know when it's better to leave a relationship and deal with the loneliness of being alone? How do you know when that's a better option than staying? I, I suppose what we want to look at is, am I basing, if we stay and we're really unhappy, then we must on some level be basing that decision to stay on the premise that this is going to improve, that this person is going to be better, yes. that this person or this situation is going to change. And I said, the, perhaps the most pertinent question to ask ourselves is, on what evidence am I basing this on? this idea that it's going to change or that this person is going to change. What is this based on? You know, when a woman, for example, let's take the scenario of someone just broke your heart. They just decided, I don't want to be here anymore. I'm out. Mm -hmm. And you didn't see it coming, but they left. And then two weeks later, they come back and they say, wait, 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 I was all wrong. I, I don't know what I was thinking. I, I love you to pieces. I, I want to be in a relationship with you. Okay. Maybe you give them a chance. Let's say it happens again a month later. And then they break up with you. Two weeks later, they come back. Oh my God, I made the biggest mistake. I At that point, it's actually really important to ask the question of that person in a very sober way, not in an emotionally charged way. What is it? that is going to be different this time and why like why would it be different this time and 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 i don't mean asking it from a place of anger i mean sincerely being curious mm -hmm. what's the plan here for more certainty because you seem very uncertain you seem to not know what you want and from my vantage point it seems very likely this is going to happen again in the next 3 to 6 months so What's different for you now other than you got panicked in the two weeks after you just did this again? In a relationship where two people are trying to make it work, you have to ask what evidence is there for the fact that this is going to make it work? It is going to work. Are we together in therapy? Are we working through it? Have we genuinely made a plan about how we're going to work through this issue? Are we communicating and there's genuine progress in the communication? Because that's the part where we consistently ignore the fact that we haven't actually had any signs that this is really going to change. Mm -hmm. And yet we go, I just feel like it can be better. Based on what? Not based on them. Based on whatever fantasy you're constructing in your head about it being better. So it's, can I live with this? The, the key questions are these. Can I live for the rest of my life in this relationship as it is today and experience a wonderful life and experience the happiness, the peace, the joy that I want to experience? Is that possible in my current relationship if nothing changed from the way it is today? And if the answer is no, the question to ask is, so therefore it needs to change or I need to leave. What evidence do I have that this is going to change? 
And that's a question you have to ask very, very soberly. There's a biased judge in here that wants to do yeah. what's comfortable, not what's going to make you happy. And you have to be very careful of not listening to that judge. Okay. What if you're not unhappy, but you're just not happy? <laughs> like what does unhappy look like exactly? Is that like obvious a, misery? Because I feel like those are the relationships where you're like, okay, I'm out of here. This is definitely not working. But it's the ones yeah. where you're like, okay, this isn't working, but you know, maybe it'll get better. Uh, it's not that bad. I don't know if there's anything better out there. What do you do yeah. then? Uh, acute, it's a, you're right. Uh, acute pain is useful because yeah. it can force action. The low level chronic pain is um, more insidious in some ways, be it emotional or physical. I mean, yeah, yeah. The, the emotional side of it is that you can convince yourself you can live with it. But even, even with, let's say, chronic physical pain as a, as a metaphor, even with that, you can kind of live with it for so many days or months or years until you get to a point where you, and I know you talk a lot about physical pain and I'm fat. I love listening to you on that subject, by the way. I'm like, whenever, whenever I see your clips on Instagram and things cut up from you talking about these subjects, I know you have so much experience with it. Um, I Ooh, love it. I, I love chronic pain experience. <laughs> Yeah, well, Thank I just you, love though. how it, it, you talk about it in such a raw and real way. And, and I have to say, I admire, I really admire the rawness and the authenticity that you bring to your communication publicly, because I know that's not easy and it's amazing. Um, but I... Thank you. I, I, when it comes to chronic pain, we can, we can deal with it for so many days until it becomes something where we go, there's almost a moment where we admit to ourselves like... This is a problem. Yeah, this, this isn't this isn't life well lived. Like I am, this is so ever present in my life that it, it may not make me suicidal in every moment, but it certainly is like taking away any enjoyment I could have out of this life. And, and that becomes, I think, a certain crescendo of pain at, at a particular point. And I think that's true in a relationship too. emotional, the chronic, uh, the chronic pain of not getting your needs met is something you can sustain for a certain amount of time before you look at that expanse of time and go, on what level was I really living during that time? And, and do I really want to live like that forever? Because maybe this relationships have this unique ability to poison other parts of our lives when they're going wrong. You know, we can kind of leave a bad day at work and go back home to our family or our relationship mm. and and escape. When when things are wrong in our relationship, unless, unless we are the most incredible compartmentalizers, that for me personally, I mm -hmm. can't. I, I'm not good at compartmentalizing in that way. If yeah. I have a fight with my girlfriend or if something, I carry that with me into the day, and it affects me, and it creates anxiety, and it creates yeah. so you know, it can poison everything else. And, and that's what you have to look at is the unhappiness I feel in this relationship. I may be convincing myself it's contained to this area of my life, but actually it's probably infecting me everywhere. And, and I'll bet if we really look at it, it's infecting everything else 
two, I was in a relationship where I was incredibly unhappy and, and I was lying to myself about how unhappy I was. And my publisher met with me one day and she was, we were doing an interview together and I was interviewing her and she's an amazing, wonderful woman. She's been a kind of mentor to me in my life. And she left the interview and she didn't tell me this until the relationship ended, but she was with her sister at the time. They left the interview, went off. She said, I saw you that day. And I looked at my sister when we left and I said, he is not happy. Like something is wrong. Like he's not good. And yeah. I didn't realize just how much I was telegraphing that to the people that, that knew me and how much worse energy they were getting as a result of me being unhappy. So that I would say is fine saying it's bearable, but you have to, the, you know, you have to look at the true cost of staying where it's comfortable mm. because you probably haven't really assessed that if you're still where you are right now. Okay. That's reasonable. Do you think if you're in that kind of situation, there's a way to step back to look at the situation without you know, being in it, I mean, take a vacation or maybe have some time apart and then look at it. Is there a way to speed up the process of realizing you're not happy? That's a great question. I think that you have to, I do think that space helps in whatever form it comes. You know, it's not always easy to just up and take yeah. a, a vacation and get space, but maybe even just the space of we, when we're not happy, we, we tend to slowly isolate and we stop seeing certain friends, especially the friends that are telling us things we don't want to hear. <laughs> we stop seeing that person gradually, or we go and see that person, but we no longer talk about our relationship with them because we know that if we talk about it, they're going to say something that's going to upset us. It's going to poke at some deep part of us that feels the truth of it. And that's not, we don't want that truth. So mm -hmm. our cognitive dissonance needs us to distance ourselves from certain people. I think that, I think that continuing to invite in, is kind of in the same way that we, you know, people like you and I do and your dad does. And, you know, people who like debate, people who like, who want, to hear other ideas who don't want to be in their echo chamber. Uh, you have to put yourself around other conversations. And I, and I think that that's actually an important thing to do in your relationship. If you're not happy, go listen to the people who are pointing out something mm. you don't want to hear, hear what they have to say, spend time with those friends and those family members, do the brave thing of not isolating from people who are pointing out things you don't like. Okay. That makes sense. I like that. Okay, I'm, I'm switching. I'm switching the topic up a little bit. Uh, I've seen some clips you have on narcissism. Could you hmm. tell me how to detect a narcissist? I see. I feel in some ways underqualified in this area because uh, you know I think of when I think of narcissism as a psychological term that obviously some people have studied at depth. Um, you know, I, I, they obviously can give you the diagnosable traits of a narcissist. I, I, I worry about our culture of 
like we have a culture right now that seems to just diagnose everybody with narcissism yes. <laughs> immediately. Yes. Uh, and it, I have it in my comment section. You say, you know, I can't make a video about a guy doing a selfish thing without the comments being like, he's a narcissist. <laughs> and I'm like, well, hang on. Like we ha there have to be degrees here. It can't just be that we, that we label everyone a narcissist. What, but, but I do think that we all have narcissistic tendencies. Um, I think all of us show those things in different moments of our lives. Uh, the question is whether it becomes clinical or is clinical with someone that we're dealing with. I look for things like, can someone actually, can someone actually say they're sorry? A very simple thing. But can someone say that, can someone say you're right? That wasn't, what I did wasn't great. That wasn't a, that wasn't a good thing to do, or that was a selfish thing to do, or can they reflect and have the self-awareness of knowing that they did something that wasn't okay, or at the very minimum was an intensely hurtful thing to do or was ignorant or showed lack of understanding and acknowledge that and apologize for that. I, I've, I really, and I don't think people who don't apologize are automatically narcissists, mm -hmm. but it's, but I do, think that it's one of those character traits that it would it freaks me out being around people who can't apologize because that, that's fair yeah that then you kind of can't work with that person you you know there's people you can be with someone who does a lot wrong but if they can acknowledge themselves and be aware and and make a commitment to be better or to be more understanding or whatever it is that needs to change you can work with that person. That's like a, a partner you can actually work with. But someone who can't acknowledge what, what they did wrong or where their flaws are and can't apologize, that's a problem. And if on top of that, where, where it becomes particularly insidious and a term that's also very much in psychological vogue right now is gaslighting. Okay, you what know, if is, someone, can you please, please, please tell me what that is? Because I've heard that so many times. I've been like, I have to yeah. look into that. Everyone's saying gaslighting. I have no idea what it means. So thank you for bringing that up. Is, yeah, what is that? Is the, it's the term given to when you make someone feel crazy for something that reasonable a term I should have known rational and logical that they are saying you know it's it's making someone feel like they're not not saying I disagree with you but but going a step further and making them seem like they're completely nuts okay. like if I if if you if you and I spoke three days from now and you referred to something in this conversation that I absolutely said and I said, I never said that. Ah. Uh, and you, you say, what do you mean? You, you don't, I, said, I never said that. Uh, you say, but that you had this whole opinion. You made a big okay. thing of it. No, you completely, I don't know where you're getting that. You completely, you're completely off. I don't know where you got that. If I'm making you see, then now you start to question your sanity and you start to go, wait, did he say it? Maybe I, maybe I did miss here. Am I like you start? And the, the real insidious ah. thing about gaslighting is that it, it erodes your self-esteem and your belief in, in your perception of, of life. You literally, and, and often people who have been gaslighted 
have the experience of getting out of a relationship and then finding out a whole bunch of things about their partner. You know, it's like they saw this thing and they didn't like it. And they were like, wait, this seems inappropriate. And that seems inappropriate. And that seems inappropriate. And the whole time this person's going, you're crazy. You're crazy. And then they get out of the relationship and realizing this person was having an affair all along, but was gaslighting them the entire time. That's, That's not particularly spiteful and nasty. Okay. So it's, it's lying, but it's a very specific type of lying where you make the other person think they're crazy. Right. Okay. That's interesting. Oh, I'm really glad I know that now. I don't know why I haven't <laughs> Googled that before. I should definitely know what that, what that meant. It's a word that I've come to kind of hate. Oh, it, it's like a, uh, yeah, I kind of, I, it comes up so much that it gets annoying, but it is actually a real thing that so many people who make other people's lives miserable do. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. What did you say? You called it Vogue, Psychology Vogue? Psychological Vogue. Psychological Vogue. <laughs> That's fun. Okay. Um, just out of curiosity, how are people meeting people nowadays? Like, are there certain apps or is it all like Instagram DMs? Or what are the popular ways of meeting people now that the world got shut down for a few years? Yeah. I. Well, the thing is, apps were already... That was already the number one game in town as far as meeting people. And 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 then you had the people who were on the fence and, and like, oh, I don't want to use the apps. I hate the apps. Or they'd had bad experiences. They were burnt out from using the apps. Yeah. And then, of course, COVID hit and anyone who was on the fence kind of didn't have a choice. If they were single, they were stuck in their house and the yeah. apps were the only way to meet someone. So the app companies, it was kind of like, it was perfect for them because it just whoever was on the sidelines got brought in at that point. Um, and yeah, I mean, I don't have a problem with the apps per se. I mean, there are definitely problems. They create problems as well as solving them. You know, it doesn't do any favors for our kind of attraction circuitry to, on one hand, it's incredibly useful to be able to sit in your pajamas and meet someone in a neighboring town. Like, how could you do that before? I, I, as an introvert, uh, there's a part of me that loves the idea that you don't have to actually leave the house to meet people. Have you taken, just wait, side note, have you had a personality test done? I have to ask you this because I have so many people who come on and they're like, yeah, I have millions of followers, but I'm introverted really. Are you sure? Yeah. If you saw my life, you wouldn't question it. (laughs) Okay, okay. I am really like, uh, I'm, I really enjoy my own company and I'm, I'm someone who, when people ask me, I just know from the evidence of my life that I very much have to be cajoled and persuaded or persuade myself into doing things that involve other people. Um, I, and I love people. I really do. I love people. I, I, but I love being on stage because there's a separation. I, I, <laughs> it's like my first I get far like, away from the people. <laughs> yeah, I can, you know, and, and I find the part of an event where everyone comes and says hello to me and it's lovely. I don't, I, I'm not complaining at all, but the part where there's a line of people coming over to me, I find in some ways harder than the time when I'm on stage. Um, nothing. I heard Stephen Fry once say like, there's nothing he hates more than a party. Mm-hmm. And And I sort of relate to that. And that's not to say, like, I I had 
there are certain parties I'm at and I'm like, I'm having the time of my life. This is great. But normally that's because there's great music and I like dancing. It's not because I'm so enjoying all of the small talk I'm having with random people at this party. That to me, if my, if my like mum or someone is like, invites me to a wedding of a family member I don't really know, that's my nightmare. Okay. I'm, I'm convinced. That's funny because I, I would say I care for people, but I don't really like people, but I'm very extroverted. Like the average person, I, I don't get along with very well or something, but I, I like That's being around an interesting them. interesting yeah. combination. So wait, you- Very you difficult, yeah. care for people, but you, you don't like them. I don't really. It's very, it's been like difficult since I was a teenager. I was like, oh fuck, I hate people but I really like being around them and I'm caring if I care uh -huh. if they're suffering, but I think maybe it's so just you, irritable. I think perhaps I'm just slightly irritable. Yeah. I would sort of describe myself a little bit. Yeah. Like that too. I do you, if I saw you at a party, would, do you think that I would experience you as, as, uh, not liking people easily no. or do you think you'd come across as very warm and friendly and kind yeah very warm and right. friendly for sure so you just i do you, you it's just, a, just a weird it's a love-hate relationship i think i maybe yeah. just don't appreciate people whining about things i think if i really needed to pinpoint it it would be that anyway i don't know how we got <laughs> sidetracked into that well, i like hearing about it it's interesting <laughs> okay Okay. But I do, but I do, I do understand where that question comes from because that's yet another thing where it seems popular these days for everybody to say they're an introvert. And I, I have the same, I have the same feeling a lot where you go, are you really an introvert? Or is it just that sometimes you like to be alone and you're calling yourself an introvert, yeah, which I it, think are, are different things. I think there are some people who are actually introverted though, and, and end up growing a following because they're super open. And sometimes if you're a super open individual, that kind of covers your introversion. Uh, hmm. You usually don't have someone that's like low in openness and introverted, and then they'll hang around other people. But sometimes being high in openness can make you look like an extrovert. Right. Yeah. I love, I love sharing ideas with people. I don't love the initial conversations where you are talking about nothing. And, and okay. I also... I really love, I really love spending time with like one or two. I like, I have three or four really close friends in LA and I love spending time with them. I, but when someone I don't know very well asks me somewhere, I have to conv And by the way, some ah, of the best experiences okay. I have are from saying yes. So I ha I'm not saying I don't ever do it. I, sometimes I get myself to say yes. Cause I'm like, I'm all, I never regret expanding my life and expanding my circle and bringing new people into my world. But I, my God, do I have to do a persuasion mm -hmm. mission on myself to get myself to do it? Okay. Interesting. Do you know anything about the, the love languages? Is there anything to that? Yeah, I, well, I, I think any kind of heuristic that, that makes people love a model. They love like, the five love languages really effectively created a model by which people could put a, a, a an easy language to the way they are. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, you know, you can say, Oh, I'm, you know, touch is my love language, my number one love language, or 
you know, quality time is my number one love language. And it kind of, it just gives you this nice, neat framework to put to the way that you are. And I think those things are, are very useful when applied practically in a relationship, because it allows you to ask a simple question. It gives you a language to kind of look at communication with your partner. You can say, ah, oh, so my partner is more, th-. you can even ask them, which, what would you say is your love language? Yeah. And by hearing them out and by maybe even observing, because sometimes people will tell you it's this, but then you realize they light up every time you do this. So it's like, oh, actually, probably this is more your love language. You can then actually serve them better and be a better partner. So I think that it's very useful from, from that point of view. But of course, models, you know, it's like the, there's, you know, the other model that people quote a lot is attached. The the book about different attachment styles and that can we get into that slightly i haven't heard of yeah. that i don't know the book about different, there's a, there's a book called the, attached which which references different attachment styles there's insecure no there's anxious attachment style secure attachment style um and avoidant and the hmm. the idea is that i suppose it the kind of the caricatured version of it would be anxious attachment style needs a lot of love and validation and reassurance. Uh, and it's worried someone's going to leave and abandon them. The secure attachment style is just very comfortable in their skin. Um, doesn't react, you know, to arguments in a way where they immediately feel like if you have an argument, Oh my God, you're going to leave me. Um, they're, 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 they're secure in the relationship and in themselves and in their ability to perhaps even deal with it. If the relationship goes away. Uh, the avoidant is someone who is, uh, you know, literally any, when things get too intense, too intimate, when they feel too much commitment, when they will feel like uh, all of that, what that could entail, they, they need their space. They need to, to create distance so that they can feel like they can breathe. Um, and n- none of these things, the idea of this, I suppose, is that none of these things are inherently just a bad thing. And it's not that we should spend our lives trying to change our attachment style, but we should at least understand our attachment style and figure out how to work with it and also help our partner understand how to work with it. And ideally choose a partner who soothes rather than agitates our attachment style. Um, but, but again, like that's a, that's a useful model, but where it gets confusing is you can be, you know, life isn't as simple as this is your attachment style. Yeah. Cause a, we grow and evolve, but B you can be really secure attachment style in one relationship yeah. because yeah. You're in a safe relationship, and then you can be in this passionate, wild, crazy relationship with someone who is constantly making you feel anxious and insecure, and and is like you never know what's coming around the corner. And all of a sudden, you find yourself anxious all the time, and you go, "I've never been this person in a relationship before. What's happening to me right now?" So it changes even between relationships. Okay, that's what I was going to say. Sounds like a toxic relationship and a not toxic relationship potentially. Um, right. how- how do you judge if a relationship is healthy if you end up getting into one of those passionate relationships where you're head over heels in love with somebody, but you're also kind of anxious all the time trying to mm. please them? How do you know when that kind of relationship can be good? Like, is the passion a bad thing sometimes? How do you identify when it's a good thing? I know that was a whole bunch of questions, but. Well, the problem is that when that when it's good, that's like, it 
feels the best. I mean, it's like the, you just took a hit. I mean, you kind of did just take a hit of something, you know, you have in those moments, all these chemicals flooding your brain and, and it's, you are, you are quite literally on a high. And yeah. so it's some, it's the best. And then it goes just as far in the other direction. The, the nadir of that is just gruesome when all of a sudden you're worried they don't love you or that they're going to leave you or that how will I ever survive yeah. without this person? It, it then feels like it, it, it's death. So to me, you know, you've, you've already put someone in a position that you're making your happiness far too dependent on them. And you're probably overvaluing them. You know, that you're in order to feel that way, in order to feel just sick with love, you have to be overvaluing something. Mm. You have to be, because this isn't the only great person in the world. There are other amazing people on this earth. There, you didn't, you, you weren't that lucky that you found the only awesome person there is. And and they decided to like you. Them liking you isn't unique because guess what? They like you because you're attractive. They like you because you have great qualities. That's why they like you. It wasn't an accident. You didn't, you know, you didn't win them in some charity auction where they were like, well, I guess, you know, I'm going to love this person out of charity. Now you, they, they like you because there's something attractive about you. That's not unique to them. Other people are going to feel that way too. And the attraction you feel for them isn't that unique either. There's, there are going to be other amazing people in this world if you can stay open to them. That alone should be some kind of antidote to that lovesickness because we realize that what I'm doing here is I'm deifying this person. And, and now this behavior, which really sadly becomes a departure from ourselves, it, you know, when we're serving up grapes and wine to this deity that we've created and we're doing anything we can to please them and go out of our way for them and bend over backwards and relinquish our own standards in order to be closer to them or to see them on their terms all the time or constantly compromising our calendar to suit theirs. And yeah, we're at, that's not us. It's like an, it's like a super nice person. <laughs> like the the person who's super nice all the time, who's like affectedly affectedly nice. Like they're they're they you know, it doesn't make sense how nice they are all the time, and it doesn't come from kindness. It comes from ego. It comes from wanting everyone to love them. That's not real either. And the person who's a people pleaser in a relationship, you're literally not being yourself. So now the person that this person is with isn't even you. It's a, it's a completely different uh, fabricated person. And, and if you were in power, you wouldn't be acting this way. So you feel like you're not in power. So in order to have some kind of power, I've got to make this person reliant on me or dependent on me, or I've got to do something crazy and wild and keep this person energized and interested. That, that's not a relationship you'd want for the rest of your life. So we almost have to like, when we feel that way, take a breath and say, if I can't truly be me in this relationship, then this is going to be a really miserable life. So there's no point white knuckling it right now to hold on to them. 
because I wouldn't want to live that way for the rest of my life. So let me be me right now. A, a great me, but let me be me and see if that's enough for this person. And if it's not enough for this person, then I don't need to worry. I didn't lose what I thought I lost. And that's the great fear. The great fear is we're going to lose something we were supposed to have. Mm -hmm. This person's amazing and they're the best person I'll ever meet. And this, I'm supposed to be with this person. Not if, not if it doesn't work out, you're not. Like if in year two, someone breaks up with you, it wasn't supposed to be a five-year relationship. doesn't matter what you did. It doesn't matter what you were trying to. Someone, by definition, the person who leaves you was not the person you were supposed to have. It's like it, it literally becomes an act of, of science fiction to say they broke up with me, but that was my person. Evidently not. I like that. Is there any way to have a relationship that has those highs without having them also have the lows? Like, or is that kind of passion just toxic always? I think that we want to check ourselves. You know, when we're, when we're feeling, when we're feeling immense joy and appreciation and, and love for somebody, it has to be, tempered by the fact that I would be okay, even if I didn't have this, like, this is amazing, but, but I should always be feeding my life in a way that makes my life amazing and myself amazing. I don't mean like you have to achieve so that it, not measuring it by some just external standard of achievement, but I have to keep building myself and how proud I am of myself in life anyway. So that if this goes away, I'm still left with someone I really love and am proud of. And I, you know, there are parts of my life that give me sort of giddy highs sometimes when I'm going on yeah, stage, yeah. when I'm touring, when I'm, that, that when I make a great video and everyone loves it. And I'm like, you know, I find myself, you know, I, I always have to suspect myself <laughs> when I didn't just read the comments once but I went back for more five times today to see what the new ones were. Like if I was just trying to get a temperature on whether the video did well or not, did it resonate with people? Then I'd go check, read some comments and be like, oh, this is really resonating. People are really enjoying this. That's great. That's informative. But if for the sixth or seventh or eighth time today, I'm going back and refreshing to see the next five comments, the next 10, now I have to suspect myself because I know already I'm setting myself up for a fall. I know that if now, here's the danger. <laughs> now I'm making videos every week. If I get too attached to the validation I just got from that video, that's going to inform my next video. Now, my next video, I'm not creating because I really feel like, wow, there's this new thing I really want to say that I think is going to help people. I'm making, I'm trying to make a video that gets as many great comments as the last video. And now I'm departing from myself yeah. and, and what's authentic already. You can apply that same thing to a relationship. Uh, that's how people get stuck in echo chambers too, because they make something and everybody loves it. Whoever their audience is absolutely loves it. And they're like, oh, well, if I just keep doing that, it'll just keep working. And then I think that's how yeah. people get stuck without wanting to piss off their audience ever. And then, like That's you right. said, yeah, they stop being as truthful, right? I always liked, even though he might be 
you know, have some severe mental health issues. I also liked Kanye for that reason. I always loved yeah. that. I like every album. I always truly respected him as an artist because every album he brought out risked losing everyone that came with him on the last one. Like he just made unique things artistically instead of pandering to the last thing he made. I always thought that was unbelievably brave. Yeah, I agree. Or he's just, or he's just wired for that, and it's not something that's easy for the rest of us to replicate. Apart yeah. from you, who seem to have no problems ever going up to someone attractive and asking them out. <laughs> this is true. This is very true. Okay, I you think might I... be wired like Kanye in the best way. Oh God, I hope not. It's in the definitely best way. possible. Uh, maybe the worst way too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How do you learn if you've? How do you learn to be emotionally vulnerable with somebody? Like tell them things that you're worried they might find out about you, and then they won't like you anymore. Like there are there slow ways you teach people to start opening up instead of pretending they're perfect? Well, I think there's a few practical considerations. So emotionally vulnerable doesn't mean lay everything out on the table the first time you meet someone. <laughs> you know, I also tend to do that though. Right. <laughs> so that, that can be, you know, by the way, if you are able to pass off that emotional vulnerability with sufficient charm, you probably can get away with it really early. But but just kind of spilling your guts to someone you just met and, and sharing and sharing and sharing things that maybe they don't yet have the context for. Yeah. Risks actually quite a lot of misinterpretation. Um, and also, it it kind of does ourselves a disservice if we don't start at least by by talking up the things that are great about us i i mean i sometimes i i don't talk very much about like you saw how uncomfortable i am in the introduction when you ask me you know where have you i know the introduction i gave myself yeah, in this yeah. podcast was sort of too humble so now People who don't know me, who follow know, you, that's a problem. Don't actually realize how great I am, but that's because of me. And my, I go, I like quickly shrug off. Like, yeah, I had a New York Times bestseller, and millions yeah, of people yeah. follow me, and blah blah blah. It's like, I, I'm actually in some ways doing myself a disservice because, because it might, I might have people's ear more if I started by saying, well, I did this, and then this thing happened, and then this impressive thing happened, and whatever. So. On a date, the same thing can happen. We want to put our best foot forward in the beginning, but vulnerability as we progress and letting people in bit by bit and seeing how they react to that. If someone reacts with immediate copious amounts of judgment, then <laughs> that's a bit of a red flag. And if if you point out, hey, that feels really like you're judging me and that's sad because I was just trying to share more about myself with you, if you communicate like that and then they go, oh my God, you're right. I'm that sucked. And I'm, I'm sorry. That was just a reflex response. Ah, well, there's hope for these two people. Mm -hmm. If that person says, well, I do think that it's blah, 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 that you did that or that you were like, then you go, okay, that this might not be my crowd. So we have to get used to the fact that if I share something, if you or I share something on our podcasts where a bunch of your audience says, oh, I can't believe she, you know, you told us something about your past and a bunch of people say, I can't believe she did that unfollow. Then it's like, okay, then, then you, 
you're not my crowd because I I want to be around people who who can hold space for different parts of me and who aren't only married to one version of me. And the same is true in relationships. I want to be literally married to someone who's not only married to one version of me, but someone who can hold space for the different parts of me. Now, the only caveat I would add to that is that revealing vulnerabilities isn't the same as constantly dumping the same vulnerabilities on someone day after day. If we say that thing, uh, you know, I'm struggling because I feel unattractive and overweight and and our partner hears that and that's like a beautiful moment of sharing if now every 3 hours you say oh i feel fat today oh i feel like i'm the, oh i'm now it's now it's not you're not sharing vulnerability you're not being vulnerable you're just you're just ambushing someone constantly with your negative and self-conscious thoughts and the person we're with doesn't yeah. deserve that we have to take responsibility yeah. for working on the things that we need to work on at the same time as letting our partner in on that journey. Have you ever experienced a relationship between a man and woman where there's jealousy about achievements? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So what very, do you, very common. What do you do? Well, how is By the that way, common? It's, always, it's usually, like, it's usually the person who's achieving a lot, who complains that their partner doesn't, you know, complains, you know, they complain about their partner being uncomfortable with it. But I always think, I think every person who achieves a lot should have to go through the experiment of being the person in the relationship who, as Chris Rock puts it in his stand up, plays tambourine. Uh, 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 like that, yeah. Everyone should have to have the run the experiment of what it feels like to be a passenger on somebody else's wild rocket ship journey. Um, because it, it doesn't excuse us not supporting our partner's achievements, but it at the very least gives a little perspective on how intimidating it can be for anyone in a situation where they're with someone who's on some kind of a rocket ship. And the feelings that go with that of, oh my God, when they get to where they're going, are they still going to want me? Um, which is a very human thing to feel. But I think everyone should consider how attractive it can be when you do support your partner's achievements, even when some of them make you uncomfortable because they they activate certain traumas you have, fears you have, insecurities you have, if you can still be supportive through that, that makes you a pretty outstanding and beautiful partner. And ironically, it's your best hope of that person wanting to stay with you. I was not expecting that answer. Like, what do you do with jealousy? Be more humble. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I, you know, sometimes, sometimes I also think that there's a lot, something that a lot of people do who are successful is people who are successful, an enormous number of people who are successful are successful because of insecurity. Yes. They have some demon that, that they think that if they become successful, then they will be enough. 
Now, what that often produces is people who are successful and then weaponize their achievements as a way to impress other people. So now you've got the stereotype of the guy who is bragging about how much money he's made or the woman who is really successful at work and never stops talking about her work and, and what she's achieved. And on a date that, you know, I get a lot of people say, oh, people are really intimidated by me. And I think to myself, that may be true. hundred percent. It may be true, but we also do have to ask ourselves, am I actually showing the full breadth of who I am or am I going onto a date and just hitting someone over the head with this thing that I get the most attention for? Because I think that whatever is the thing you get most attention for is kind of the thing that, that is really attractive when you don't wear it, when you can wear that lightly. I mean, I think that, you know, some of my, my brother got a doctorate from Oxford University and there are some amazing people at Oxford University and there are some unbearable people at Oxford University. And, you know, my, my brother's friends, because my brother is a kind and humble human being, are like him. And I always loved that whenever I was around them, they're such erudite, learned people. I mean, they are true, true academics. And you could go to lunch with them and they wear their knowledge so lightly and they're so pleasant to be around and you feel more intelligent by being around them, not less. And I just, I find that to be such an endearing quality when you're around someone who could make you feel less successful by what they've achieved. Yeah. They actually wear it lightly and make you feel more successful somehow. I like that. Okay. Well, the time is up for our hour. Thank you very much for coming on. That was interesting. It was nice meeting you. That was lovely meeting you too. I, I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Before you go, if people don't follow you, where should they go to follow you? Well, I actually, rather than just, you can follow me on Instagram or, or, you know, any other platform, basically YouTube or whatever, but there's, there's something quite practical people can do with me right now. I'm in real time right now, running for thousands of people, a 30 day confidence challenge where I'm giving away, I'm literally giving people five specific missions they can do to improve their confidence over 30 days, not as a kind of you know, everything's so hyperbolic these days. This isn't about transforming your whole life in 30 days. It's about in 30 days, if you do these five things, it will give you a measurable shift in your confidence. And if people go to mhchallenge.com, they can sign up for free. It's a, it's a free blueprint I'm giving, but we're all doing it together. And, um, you haven't missed anything. It's coming. Um, and uh, you can start the journey with us. It's going to be a lot of fun. And it genuinely will give people at the end of 30 days, a measurable improvement in their confidence and momentum that can take them into their goals for the rest of the year. I might have to join that. I'm intrigued. I'd love Sounds you like to. Fun. Yeah. And I'd love to have you at some point on our podcast. You're, I, I want my only uh, sadness of this uh, time we've spent together is that I genuinely want to hear more from you. Um, and I, uh, I hope that you'll give me the chance to fire questions at you. Cause I'm, I'm, I love your content and I love your, your style It's unique and it's different. And it's not, it's not, it, does, it has none of the hyperbole that 
so much content out there has. It's grounded and it's real and it's honest. And, oh my um, God, and I'm a fan. Too many, too many compliments being thrown here. Thank you very much. That's really nice to hear. I will definitely talk to you on yours. Amazing. Well, thank you.